0: I think what was transformational as much as by sort of example and inspiration as the actual machines. You know, he became sort of Mr. Steam and a lot of people took inspiration from that.
1: Imagine a world in which there are no machines. If you need to move something heavy, get from place to place, or pump water, you have limited options, including human power, animal power, and if you're close to a suitable river, river power. Thanks in large part to Scottish inventor James Watt, the Industrial Revolution was a time of unprecedented technological change in which his Watt steam engine contributed to a blossoming of machine produced power unlike anything the world had ever seen. Join us as we explore this fascinating man and his life. This is Riches and Power, the podcast where we explore the industries and trends that shaped our world with experts renowned in their field of study. I'm your host, Alex Dubay, and I'm glad you're here as we explore topics both large and small, familiar and strange, and near and far. Join me as we learn about the forces that bent the world around them and built the world as we know it today. Hello and welcome to Riches and Power. My name's Alex Dubay. I'm your host. Today I'm thrilled to be joined by David Miller, who's an emeritus professor of history of science at the School of Humanities and Languages at the University of New South Wales in Australia. He's a historian of science and technology and has published extensively. And today we have the privilege of talking with him about the inventor James Watt. David has published several books about this inventor, including James Watt, Chemist, Understanding the Origins of the Steam Age, and most recently, The Life and Legend of James Watt, Collaboration, Natural Philosophy, and the Improvement of the Steam Engine. If you want to learn more about David and his writing, visit unsw.edu.au slash staff slash David Miller. David, thank you so much for joining. Really appreciate the time today.
0: It's a pleasure, Alex. Yes. Glad to be here.
1: So to start out, James Watt is a name that I heard in, I think, grade school and middle school and high school. Anytime you have some history of science class or science class, you you hear the name James Watt. But before he was the famous inventor, what was his personal history? Where was he born? What do you think of him as a, a person? What was his family like? Can you just give us a flavor of the man?
0: Indeed, yes. Well, James Watt was a Scotsman. He was born in uh, in Greenock, which is just south of Glasgow on the Clyde River in uh, 1736. His father was a a local merchant uh, and also a ship's chandler, which meant that he supplied ships which were using the port of Greenock, and those ships would be engaged in the Atlantic trade. So Watt grew up in a household that was very much focused on the sea and on, on seagoing vessels. His mother was, uh, was Agnes Muirhead. She came from a family of, of Glaswegians who were, who were merchants and builders also. So Watt grew up, it's very tempting sometimes with these famous inventors to tell sort of rags-to-riches stories. Um, And sometimes, you know, the the poverty of his upbringing is exaggerated. He actually came from a reasonably prosperous household, although his father did go bankrupt subsequently, but not during Watts Youth. So, um, yeah, and it was a Presbyterian household, strongly religious household. There was an emphasis on order and accountability. And that religious side of things also, I think, helped to promote commercial activity. Um, the family would have been supporters of the Scottish Union, that is to say they they, they would have hated the Jacobite rebellions of 1715 and 45. You know, they were very much part of the Union of Scotland and England. So what had a, a solid beginning in life, which of course was developed further by his education, much of which occurred within his family.
1: I could imagine as much. It sounds like a family that was quite focused on education, and and that was actually my next question. Did he have a depth of formal education as we would think about it these days, you know, high school, college, maybe postgraduate? Was it a formal education process for him?
0: No, by by modern standards, he had very little formal education. He went to a couple of schools. The first was a local commercial school in Greenock, run by a, a chap called McAdam, and then. At about the age of 14, he went to Greenock uh, Grammar School, which was a strong school. He there would have absorbed at least the basic elements of classics, which were important in a grammar school education. But he was also fortunate to have a teacher called John Marr, who was something of a mathematician and had quite a collection of instruments, telescopes, quadrants, globes, and so on, as well as books on maths and navigation, annuities, insurance, and so, so what gained something of his formal education there? But I think most of his, his education, the education that he was really able to use later in life as an inventor came, I think probably from hanging around in his father's workshops in Greenock and also a brief apprenticeship that he had in London with a, with a scientific instrument maker called John Morgan, what was there in the, in the sort of mid 1750s as a very, a very young man. And he was a quick learner, and he became quite an expert instrument maker through that process. But I think throughout his life, what was what we call an autodidact, that is to say he was, he was self-taught. And whatever influences he found around him, you know, he absorbed them like a sponge.
1: Kind of a Benjamin Franklin type style of just absorbing everything and learning from it?
0: Yes, indeed. And constantly um, thinking of ways that things could be improved. He was, you know, we would call him the ultimate improver. He was very quick at coming up with ideas, um, even as a very young person.
1: I know it's always kind of dangerous looking backwards because you know the end result. You know that he becomes this world famous inventor. But do you think if you could kind of imagine yourself back seeing James Watt as a as a boy or as a young adult, do you think there were obvious green shoots of him as an inventor that, that would kind of come into the world stage as much as he did early on in his life?
0: It's very difficult to access such information. I mean, we do have lots of stories about what as a child, um, but most of those are retrospective. It's not unusual for there to be stories about inventors and how precocious they were as children, you know, and, and there's sort of plenty, of plenty of stories of what kind of drawing geometrical diagrams on the hearth in the house and making models, even fiddling with steam kettles and somehow, you know, having a premonition of the steam engine.
1: <laughs> I, I assume some of those are, are clearly apocryphal and just made up after the fact?
0: Yeah, many of them I think are. So we need to be need to be careful. I think obviously what did have certain innate qualities and it does it would be very surprising given his later life if he wasn't very quick as a child you know very very quick witted and and very quick to grasp things but really if we're looking for actual inventive activity that we can we can document that really comes in his time in glasgow when he becomes instrument maker to the university of glasgow and there we can document him constantly improving instruments as well as repairing them and building them he developed instruments which were could be used, or machines that could be used in manufacturing instruments. So he he, he was uh, improving production techniques as an instrument maker. He, as well as being instrument maker to the university, he he also had a, a shop. He was a he was a merchant selling instruments, and he sold his own barometers, which were improved you know improved versions of barometers. Maybe one of the first things that you could say was really, really his and was quite novel was actually a drawing machine. It was a pe- perspective drawing machine, rather like uh, what would we, we would know as a pantograph.
1: Is that to aid with perspective in drawings, help you realize that a tree is farther in the background, for instance?
0: Yeah, that's right. So he was a general merchant. He sold you know, pretty much anything you could think of, but with an emphasis on instruments,
1: and is this period you're talking to early, mid-1700s? What, what's the decade where we're located right now?
0: We're talking here about the late 1750s, the early 1760s.
1: Okay. And when do you start to see the emergence of ultimately what he became famous for, but him working with steam? When when do you see James Watt's life really start to intersect with steam power outside of perhaps the kettle at his mom's stove early on in life? Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, well, it's actually at about the same time that I'm talking about where he's doing all these improvements to instruments. A a friend of his, actually a student at uh, Glasgow University uh, called John Robeson, becomes involved in 1759, if I recall rightly, in um, designing a new type of steam engine. He, He was interested in using engines for transport and for carriages and he was also interested in improving their their use at at pits we have to remember at, at coal pits we have to remember that you know steam engines didn't begin with james watt they they already existed and they were right. already around and i'm sure we'll talk about this so that's that's really one of the first times we can see watt kind of intersecting with steam through through this friend of his who was interested, and he consulted what about the problems of this design. We don't have a lot of documentation about what's interaction with local real life steam engines, but this must have happened in in the late 1750s as well. Local engines called Newcomen engines, which again, we we might talk about. The story that's usually told about what's beginnings in steam has to do with a, a model steam engine that was used in teaching at the University of Glasgow, and um, it ceased to work. And Watt was given the job of repairing it. And as this, the story usually goes, that's when Watt became interested in why this machine, this miniature steam engine, wasn't working. That device, that model, actually, is in the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow. Yeah, so, so I think that's that's when Watt begins to take an interest in steam. So we're here in the
1: the mid-1700s, call it, and we're on the precipice of this period when, when Watt becomes the worldwide famous inventor that, that we learn about these days. And I, I wanted to take a, just a moment to, to kind of do a, almost a U-turn, but to, to provide some context, because I think it's, it's hard to imagine these days the, the world that these folks were living in in the early 1700s, the 1600s, et cetera, without machinery, without machines being so omnipresent as they are today. And and I wonder, just could you kind of paint a picture for us? You mentioned uh, coal pits, coal mining, for instance, but what did that look like before steam engines were omnipresent? Was it just men walking up and down with buckets? I mean, was it just that simple?
0: it very often was um shallow mining you know was was conducted in that kind of way just human power uh, and animal power too driving driving pumps you know as you as you mine you tend to you get water bubbling up through the pit and this has to be removed if you're going to go deeper and so human power animal power uh, crude pumps were were used to work the mines in industry more generally, a lot of industry was, was of course, cottage industry. It was, it was conducted by people who were perhaps farmers as well, and they had a, you know, they had a weaving uh, machine in their in their cottage, and uh, a lot of the work was kind of literally farmed out to um, workers who were wide widespread. There were factories, you know, where large numbers of workers were gathered together. And these de- did use, in, by, by the sort of mid-1700s, there certainly were quite sophisticated um, machines for, especially in textiles, for spinning and for, for weaving. But these would normally be powered by water power, water wheels, and so the, the factories would be located on rivers and streams.
1: So you have this geographic limitation, and I assume it's fair to say just a much smaller scale in general. You, you you can't have as big of a mining operation, for instance, if you're reliant on horses and people to pump out the water, I assume, just because there's a very small physical limitation. There's a small ceiling to how much water you can pump. Is that
0: fair? In that way, yes, that's certainly fair. Yes. Compared with the, you know, the great factories and the great mines of the later industrial revolution, yes, everything would look rather small scale, rather puny.
1: So you mentioned earlier the Newcomen engine and and that, as I've been reading about and and researching uh, for this conversation, that that seems to be kind of the most widely adopted steam engine as we think of it today. What was the Newcomen engine and and what were its shortcomings that that Watt identified there in the, the mid 1700s?
0: Well, the Newcomen engine was, I suppose, the first machine that we would perhaps recognize as a steam engine. I mean, the pressure of steam had been used from ancient times. You know, there's a device called the appeal that that, uh, Hero of Alexander supposedly used in, in, in 100 AD. And, you know, steam pressure had been used to drive fountains and, you know, all sorts of things like that, the direct use of steam pressure.
1: What was the eel appeal in, in 100 AD? I've never heard of that.
0: Well, it was basically a, a device into which you fed steam. It was a circular device which had, had outlets on a number of arms. And as the steam shot out of the arms, it spun. It oh, spun interesting. around.
1: So there was an acknowledgement of steam as kind of a power, but it was not, not for any industrial application.
0: Not really, no. No, it was, it was more a, a, a toy, really, a, mm. a steam toy. Okay, so the the Newcomen engine. Thomas Newcomen, in the very early 18th century, brought together a number of ideas and a number of innovations into what was known as the first um, atmospheric steam engine. The basic idea of the Newcomen engine was, depended upon the idea that if you put steam into a vessel and then condensed the steam inside the vessel, by injecting cold water into it, you would produce a vacuum. Now, if you had a piston in that vessel, in that cylinder, the weight of the air above the piston would force that piston down into the vacuum. So you create a vacuum so that the air, the weight of the air, can force a piston down. That gives you movement. So the piston, if you then connect the piston to a beam, and the beam at the other side has a rod attached to it, then you can create this kind of rocking motion where you essentially produce a pump and create suction at the other side of the machine. So this was the Newcomen engine. It was a, it was a pumping engine. It was not really designed to produce rotary power of anything anything of that kind. Again, to the modern eye, it would be very crude. It was, you know metal work and machining in those days was very basic.
1: And if, if I'm understanding that correctly, you have a, a cylinder and I'm thinking in terms of say the internal combustion engine these days, it's, it's kind of the inverse of that. You're injecting steam and then cooling the steam and then it's creating a vacuum to move something as opposed to these days exploding gasoline to cause a An expansion is that correct
0: yeah that's that's right i mean there were later steam engines which again we'll perhaps talk about where the the pressure of steam was used directly to move a piston um but here in the Newcomen engine the basic idea is to create the vacuum and then let the atmosphere do the work that's why these were called atmospheric engines
1: ah i didn't put that together so it's literally atmospheric because the atmosphere was pushing down on the piston
0: Yeah, that's right. And so these machines were used in the, from the early 19th century, in small numbers, initially, they were difficult to build, they were, you know, they were not manufactured on any, uh, on any scale, they were essentially hand built um, machines, very large machines. Um, And they were, they were useful in pumping water out of mines, that was their primary use. And they spread through England and Scotland in the 18th century. And and in fact, later on, even during Watts Watts time, uh, Newcomen engines remained, and there were quite large numbers of them, and they became much more efficient. But Watts saw how inefficient these Newcomen engines were in the early days. They used enormous quantities of fuel.
1: And what was it about their design that was driving such inefficiency, these, these Newcomen engines?
0: They were essentially very leaky, quite generally. Um, Heat was being lost all over the place. But the the main problem that what identified um, was that every time you injected water into the cylinder to create the vacuum, you were also cooling down the whole machine so that when you injected more steam in, a good deal of that steam was used up in actually warming the cylinder back up. And so, this was very inefficient use of fuel.
1: So, you're using heat to both turn water into steam, but also to actually reheat metal every single cycle.
0: That's right. And so, the simple story is that what came up with this idea of a separate condenser that is to say, you condense the steam in a separate a vessel separate from the engine cylinder, but connected to it. And you inject the cooling water into the this separate condenser, and that will condense the steam throughout the machine, but without cooling down the cylinder.
1: And was this just a a radical increase in efficiency?
0: It is. It's what they call a step change in efficiency. The first Newcomen engines in the 1720s, let's say, used something like 40 or 50 pounds of coal to generate a horsepower for an hour. The early Watt engines in the 1770s would use about seven to ten pounds of coal to produce the same amount of power.
1: So you, you reduce the the coal need by seventy five percent or so.
0: Yeah, so it's it's a major it's a major change. Why was
1: mining the the water pumping? Why was that just such a dire need for? I guess you might call them industrialists or company owners or whatever you might call them back then. Why was pumping and in, in mines the site of so much of this early machinery?
0: Put very simply, it was the demand for coal. There was tremendous demand for, for coal, for industrial uses and for domestic uses. The wood-fired economy was struggling. Uh, there was a shortage of, of wood in the 18th century, which was getting more and more um, acute and so the demand for coal meant that you needed to go deeper and deeper to mine coal seams. And also the demand for, for metals was expanding rapidly in the 18th century. So mining tin, mining copper in particular. The Cornish um, copper mines were a major site where Newcomen engines were, were operated as, as well as in, in coal mines. And that's where what what did most of his business as well.
1: You have the early throes of the industrial revolution, and it, it sounds like you're, you're painting a picture almost of this self-reinforcing cycle where, where things get kicked off. You start having machinery which needs more coal, which needs more iron, which needs more everything, and 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 on and on. And so the the drive to go deeper to get more coal increases the need for better machines. Just everything is feeding on itself in this period in the early industrial revolution. Is that right?
0: It is. Yeah, yeah. It's like a, it's like an upward spiral.
1: And so just setting us in, in a time period, when was it that Watt was tinkering with the Newcomen engine? When, when did he come up with this idea of the separate condenser?
0: Okay. He came up with the idea of the separate condenser in the early 1760s. He took out his patent on it finally in 1769. Normally, a patent in those days would have run only for 14 years, but in the mid 1770s it was extended and ran till 1800. So that was the period when Watt was really able to um, exploit his invention.
1: And, and was he the only person on the planet at this point who had this insight? I mean, was this a just a lightning bolt from the sky kind of moment when it's just, oh, my gosh, we can do a 75% reduction in the amount of power required to generate a horsepower? That's, that's stunning.
0: Yeah. Well, again, the, the story is told about what often presented this way, as if he was a very um, unusual, insightful person to come up with this idea. He wasn't the only person who thought about a separate condenser. There were others. And Watt was in competition with those people too. We know very little about them. You know, we know their names, a little bit about their activity, but it's Watt who becomes famous. (laughs) And so, you know, the historical record tends to get skewed towards towards the victors.
1: Do the victor go the spoils.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. And so we know lots about Watt. And there is this tendency to attribute the invention solely to him. He certainly took it further and more effectively than anybody else, but that's partly because he excluded.
1: I, I would love to touch on the business aspect uh, later, because I, I think that part is so interesting too, that exclusionary impulse that, that Watt had is, is fascinating.
0: Well, indeed. And the, the business aspect is important because we've been talking about invention here. But more important than invention, although relying on invention, is innovation. I mean, actually taking an invention and pulling it to practical use and profitable practical use. So in, invention and innovation are not the same thing. You know, you can have lots of people who are good inventors, but if circumstances don't produce innovation, then we may never hear of them. Was
1: this something like, I, I was thinking about this moment, was, was this like when Steve Jobs rolled out the iPhone, when everybody said, oh my God, I have to get an iPhone now. James Watt invents this thing that reduces the requirement of coal by 75%. Did this spread like wildfire immediately? Or what, what happened when he came up with this idea? Because you're right, the, the invention and innovation are separate disciplines. Did he execute really well on both of those?
0: No, <laughs> no, he he didn't. When he first came up with his engine, he he was in Scotland still. He he was living in Scotland, and his problem was getting enough capital to actually develop his ideas and build a, in, initially a prototype, and then hopefully to build you know full scale engines. He got some support uh, from his family and from actually a couple of university professors at the University of Glasgow to do some of his initial experiments. And then he got uh, support from uh, a man called John Roebuck, who was an industrialist. And um, with Roebuck's help, Watt was able to develop a prototype steam engine using the separate condenser. He got to that stage, but then the, the sort of, it was always a struggle. And what had to earn a living. He had a family by this time, a wife and family. And so he, was, he went off and did civil engineering projects, building canals and um, things of that kind in order just to keep body and soul together to, to earn money.
1: And is, is this the late 1700s, early 1800s? Where are we?
0: We are now in the, the late 1760s and okay. the early 1770s. So what is really struggling to get the financial support he needs to get the the steam engine off the ground?
1: So he has this world-changing invention he's come up with, and he can't get it out to the public to change the world. Is is that where we are? He's he's struggling.
0: That's where we are. And um, it doesn't help that there's a financial crisis in Scotland. In the early 1770s, bank failures and so on. John Roebuck, who'd been supporting him, goes bust. He gets bankrupt. What then decides, and this really is a, a major turning point in his career, he decides that he needs to go to England. And more specifically, he decided that he needed to go to Birmingham and work with someone who he'd met in, in Birmingham. Watt travelled a little. He, he travelled on canal business down to London, and in the course of that, he stopped in Birmingham and he met Matthew Bolton and a few other characters there. Bolton was a toy manufacturer, mainly, um, but what saw in Bolton, I think, someone who first had had money, or seemed to have money, was able to get his hands on money, and also was, had a lot of drive and a lot of contacts. So what left Scotland, he left Glasgow and moved to Birmingham in 1774.
1: And so was Matthew Bolton the, the execution catalyst, so to speak, the, the business end of this, this inventor's life cycle? Was he the guy that really made the business start to hum along?
0: He was, he was indeed. It was a close-run thing in many, many ways. I mean, one of the reasons that what was attracted to Bolton was that Bolton was a risk-taker. Bolton had large sums of money, but he also spent large sums of money. He borrowed large sums of money. This was difficult for a door Presbyterian Scot to understand in one way, but he knew that he needed, he needed this kind of economic drive in order to make the engine a success. He had a very strange relationship, close relationship with Bolton, but very strange. On the one hand, he knew he needed Bolton, the risk taker and the money borrower. But on the other hand, he was, he was often trying to, later in their careers, he was often trying to pull Bolton back and saying, look, you're taking too many risks. Yeah, so it, it was an interesting combination.
1: And so they incorporated this company, Bolton and Watt. When, when was that? And when Matthew Bolton became involved, what did the trajectory of that company and, and the Watt steam engine look like?
0: Okay, well, the, uh, the Bolton-Watt partnership was established more or less as soon as, as Watt arrived in Birmingham. So it's established in the mid 1770s. And it's interesting really that the, the company was not, directly established to manufacture steam engines. Subsequently, it did do that, From increasingly from the 1790s. But the company, initially at least, was, was really a design operation. And that's what it was selling. It was selling a design of, of a steam engine. And so clients of the company would essentially build their own steam engine, but to this design. Bolton & Watt did have some influence on the manufacture of some of the, the key parts, like the cylinder, which had to be very, very finely bored to, to high tolerances. But the, the Bolton & Watt operation was, was essentially a, a design. They were selling a design. And the way that they sold it was also interesting. They sold it in terms of taking a cut themselves of the fuel savings that the engine enabled the customer to make. So if you had a mine owner who bought the Watt design and built a machine, they would save, they would make radical savings of fuel. And Bolton & Watt got paid by getting a cut of those savings.
1: That that also sounds like a way to set up a lot of lawsuits with people saying, (laughs) you didn't actually save me that much money. Did that ever happen?
0: (laughs) Well, there were certainly lots of lawsuits flying around in the late um, 18th century in association with Watt. Um, They were not primarily dissatisfied customers who were not making the savings, Um, but they were customers who perhaps thought that if challenges to Watt's design and to his patent were successful, then they might not have to pay.
1: They're wanting to build their own steam engine using his innovation, but he's got this patent that allows him to say, uh-uh, you can't do
0: that. He has a he has a legal right to specify, you know, how he gets paid, how much and how he gets paid. But of course that right is only as good as his ability to defend the patent against people who challenged it. And not surprisingly, given the you know, the sums of money at stake here, there were plenty of people who wanted to challenge the patent. Especially in Cornwall. Some of the mine owners there challenged the patent and they did it in various ways. I mean, they did it by building machines that used Watt's design but refusing to pay.
1: And I, I suppose that's an acknowledgement by those folks that there was an incredible savings to be had. You could reduce your energy needs by 75%. So that's really an acknowledgement of the success of Watt's design. Is that fair?
0: It is, yeah. But also it was. It was claimed that Watt was not necessarily the first inventor of that design. That was the strategy of the people who wanted to challenge Watt's patent. They challenged his originality in producing the design. And and there were there were engine builders in in Cornwall, the hornblowers and various other families, who were very, very adept at building engines. And they they tried to build them in ways that kind of got around Watts patent. You know, they'd they'd say, oh, well, yes, we have a separate condenser, but it's not the same kind of separate condenser that you're using. And so eventually in the 1790s, Bolton and Watt decided that they were on the verge of losing so much money that they really had to settle uh, this patent question in court. And so there were a series of lengthy patent trials in the 1790s, which eventually went in Bolton and Watt's favor in the very late 1790s. But it was only when that decision was made that the the vast fortunes that Bolton and Watt eventually had were secure.
1: So the court system said, these folks do have to pay Bolton and Watt for their invention. They do have to pay a royalty on the patent. And that in the 1790s, that's when you really see the, the great fortune emerge.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: It was because of a court case, or court cases. That's interesting.
0: Because of court cases. The court cases are very interesting, actually. I've studied them in, in quite some detail and the way that you know witnesses are brought forward and arguments are made about originality versus, uh, versus non-originality. One of the things a patent is supposed to do is to specify exactly what the invention is, right? Because the basic idea of a patent is it gives it gives the holder a limited period when they can exploit it. But then the invention becomes a public property. And of course, it's only useful as a public property if it's clearly described in the patent so that other people can make effective use of it. So there were, a lot of the argument was about whether Watts' patent actually specified his invention properly. And if it was judged not to do that, then it was invalid as a patent, and he would have lost the case. It's amazing how important law is to technological development.
1: Ah, okay. So he's really kind of under the gun in the 1790s to make his money or not.
0: Yeah, that's right. But the decisions in the 1790s would would have applied retrospectively. Some of the people who were challenging him were stopped paying in the 1780s, so it was a a matter of collecting arrears. And so when they finally won the case in the late 1790s, just before the patent expired, there was then this massive influx of money.
1: Was there a point at which Bolton and Watts switched from selling designs to manufacturing these machines themselves?
0: There was, Um, and that came in the 1790s because they obviously saw the patent coming to its end, and they then had to change their business plan, essentially, and say, well, we can actually manufacture engines better than anybody else. They at least thought that they could. And so that became their plan. And they were, they were making actually smaller engines. One of the things we haven't talked about is the importance of so-called rotative engines. Whereas the early Bolton and Watt engines were pumping engines, uh, giving reciprocal motion, largely to pump things, pump water out of mines and so on. Bolton saw in the mid-1780s that the real big market for steam engines lay with rotative power. That is, rotative motion that could run machines.
1: Like a wheel, like something that's spinning.
0: Yeah, spinning, operating textile machinery. So Bolton and Watt in the 1790s were already concentrating primarily on producing somewhat smaller, rotative engines. And so Watt's son, James Watt Jr., um, and Matthew Bolton's son, really took over the firm in the 1790s, um, were pushing in that, that change of direction.
1: And as they switched from selling the design to selling the machines, on balance, were they fairly successful at that pivot? Did they become a large company that was selling machines as well?
0: They were. They were reasonably, uh, reasonably successful in the early decades of the 19th century. But they were manufacturing low-pressure steam engines. And these were useful in early steamships as well as in, in, in factory applications, but where the Bolton & Watt lost out was in the development of high-pressure steam engines. And these were really coming into their own in the early decades of the 19th century. This is when we mentioned earlier the idea that you, you could use steam to move a piston directly, you know, rather than relying on condensing steam and producing a vacuum. So these high, that's what these high-pressure engines did.
1: So Bolton and Watt's machine was essentially using a similar principle to the Newcomen engine, just with a separate condenser?
0: Yeah. Bolton and Watt were, in a way, the last of the Newcomens. Yeah. They, 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 they were at the culmination of a period of steam engine design. And this is where it gets really interesting, because Watt was very strongly against high-pressure steam. The reason he gave was that he reckoned it was dangerous operating at such high pressures. And in a way, he was right. I mean, <laughs> with the development of high-pressure steam engines in the early 19th century, there were a lot of steam engine explosions. There were boiler explosions and so on. But others thought, you know, it was worth the risk or they could contain the danger. And they, they proceeded, especially, again, some of the Cornish... Innovators developed high-pressure steam engines. These were sort of an order of magnitude more efficient than the Watt engines. Again, and and in fact, um, high-pressure steam engines were the basis for most of what we think of as the Industrial Revolution. You know, I mean, the development of the railways, for example, could not have happened with Watt engines. Watt engines had nothing to do with that they were high-pressure steam engines. The thing about high-pressure steam is that it becomes possible to contemplate the idea that a steam engine might develop enough power to move itself and to move an additional load as well.
1: So the the watt engines were not powerful enough to move themselves and something else?
0: No, generally not. So... What's, what
1: then is the report card, I suppose, that you would give the, the Watt engine? Because on the one hand, it spurred a transformation in, in many ways of machine power as we know it today. It, it radically reduced how much coal you need to generate a horsepower. But on the other hand, they kind of missed the boat on high-pressure steam engines. But looking into the late 1700s into the early 1800s, how transformational do you view the Watt engine as having been?
0: I think it was, it was transformational. It was very important, even though the actual numbers of Watt engines, say in 1800, there were significantly more Newcomen engines than there were Watt engines in, in British industry. But I think Watt was transformational as much as by sort of example and inspiration as the actual machines you know, he became sort of Mr. Steam, <laughs> and a lot of people took inspiration from that. His engines did contribute a great deal to economic growth in the late 18th century. But as we've been saying, the high-pressure high engines were the really transformative ones.
1: How and why could the Newcomen engine that was just so much less efficient Going around 1800, how could they coexist with the Watt engine? Because looking backwards, it seems like the Watt engine was just so obviously the choice you'd go with. So much
0: superior. Yeah. Well, what happens to the, to the Newcomen engine in the course of the, the 18th century is that a lot of people work on small improvements to that engine over a number of years and essentially increase its efficiency. I mean there's a there's a sort of a general movement towards better machine building during that period. You know, so you get tighter cylinders and you know more effective gauges and couples and and so on, that, that the actual machinery itself operates much more effectively. And so Newcomen engines remain competitive because of these uh, these sorts of improvements. And of course people can get their hands on a Newcomen engine without having to deal with what? Which is another reason, you know. Provided you can get something that's reasonably efficient, um, that may be, may be good enough.
1: Did Watt's defense via his patent of his invention did that actually push off the adoption of his invention there in the late seventeen hundreds?
0: Yeah, some people would have been would have been put off by the cost that what was demanding, and they would certainly explore other avenues. And if they could get a cheaper Newcomen engine. Um, and they didn't have to worry about Watt and his litigation, then, yeah, they might well do that.
1: Do you think the high-pressure steam engine really owes its existence to Watt, or do you think that would have ultimately come about without him?
0: Well, I I think it would have come about um, without him. As I say, he resisted high-pressure steam. So, you know, I mean, far from promoting it, he actually tried to, to slow it down. There's a very interesting observation made by um, a chap called David Brewster, who was a, an early 19, 19th century scientist, and he he wrote in 1924, and I just I just got I've got a quotation here from him, which I think might be interesting. He, he says the high pressure engine which Mister Watt reviled, yeah, which he talked down as of inferior utility, is in every respect superior to the low pressure engine and would have accomplished all the great operations of modern times, even if the low pressure engine uh, and a separate condenser had never been heard of. Now, that's quite a radical statement. I think it's probably an overstatement, but it's certainly something that that at least some people in the 19th century started to believe. Why do you think
1: James Watt, then, is just such a monumental historical figure in the study of, of science and the Industrial Revolution? And I ask that also with the context of I always try to be wary of kind of the key person aspect to history because it's easy to over-index on the one person that did X, Y, Z thing. But why do you think it is that, that Watt looms so large? Because I think that quotation is really fascinating given all you've said. The high-pressure engine was what really caused the Industrial Revolution as we know it.
0: It was, yes. I think we need to talk about two things. We need to talk about what the historical figure, which we've been trying to do, you know, placed in historical context, can we understand him in terms of his own, his own times and what he really managed to accomplish? And then there's what the sort of legendary figure. Now, what the legendary figure is, is created in the 19th century, for all sorts of reasons, people need heroes. You know, I mean, they need military heroes. You've got people like Nelson and Wellington and the, the manufacturing interest in the 19th century needed heroes, you know, in their struggle to some extent with the landed interest. So, the, you know, the rising industrial middle class in the 19th century need heroes. And what became one of those heroes? Probably the, the most prominent of those heroes. So he became a symbol of manufacturing, of invention, of the promotion of industry. And in order to build him up as a symbol, he was actually invested with all sorts of things that he had nothing to do with. You know, I mean, people constantly talked about what, on the one hand, and the railways on the other. You know, like we we wouldn't have these steam and you know, wouldn't have these steam engines if it wasn't for what. Well, as we've been saying, steam engines are high pressure engines. They have got nothing to do with the kind of engines that what. Produced, so there's been this process of kind of loading in all this, all these accomplishments into Watt's story. That's something that happened in the 19th century, and uh, I mean, we obviously don't want to run Watt down completely. I mean, he was a remarkable man, and he made some important inventions which had significant impact. But, but you know, they were not the only thing going on, and he wasn't the only one who produced them. This is another thing, you know that that uh, Watt was part of a team. He had lots of very smart and accomplished mechanicians working with him. Um, And indeed, when you look closely, it appears that some of these mechanicians produced devices that Watt subsequently took credit for. So we need to be very careful about what we attribute to James Watt, uh, the man. And we need to be very careful about trying to delineate how his legendary status was produced and why.
1: It has the feeling almost of the process somewhat like a, a canonization of an industrial saint or something like that, or the, the man changes into a myth. And I, I wonder, why not Thomas Newcomen? I mean, he, he seems just as likely to be picked for that kind of figure.
0: Well, yes, he would be a possibility. The trouble is that we, we, uh, we know very little about Newcomen. People, even in his own day, knew very little about him. He didn't have around him a bunch of people who were eager to promote his reputation, whereas Watt did.
1: At the end of the day, public relations wins.
0: (laughs) Indeed. I mean, Matthew Bolton promoted uh, Watt's reputation as part of his business plan. The business plan was to say, here's this great inventor, here are these great machines. You need one. And also Watt's family, his son in particular, had a difficult relationship with his father, James Watt Jr. But I think one of the ways he compensated for that later in his life was he became a real tiger in terms of promoting and defending his father's reputation. And so he had a great deal to do with the early 19th century promotion of Watt as hero.
1: Well, David, absolutely fascinating conversation. I always like to end with a final question. And that is, what lesson or lessons have you learned from your study of James Watt that you think can be applied to today's world?
0: Well, some of them, I think we've, we've already touched on a little bit, that when you look closely at Watt's developments, you, you find that they were team efforts. And uh, I would suggest that in the modern world, you know, when you, when, whilst we have our heroes, you know, like Steve Jobs or Elon Musk... Look for the team. Look for the team behind them. Don't be too overtaken by the heroic status of our modern figureheads any more than we should be, you know, overtaken by the heroic status of what. Um, invention for the market. Yeah, I, I mean, inventions in one way are two a penny, but inventions that are made in view of and in light of a market, are the ones that will succeed, they're the ones that will raise capital. So innovation, the invention-innovation distinction is something that I think comes out clearly from the study of what... Also the idea that transformative technologies need to move on a number of fronts. You know, like a machine on its own is not really going to do anything. An electric vehicle on its own is not going to be able to transform the transport economy unless you've got charging stations, unless, you know, unless we change the law in various ways, various adaptations are made. You know, I, I, a, lot of, a lot of governments around the world rely on taxing petrol. When well, you get rid of the petrol car, where are those taxes going to come from? How are they going to tax electric vehicles if they do at all? You know, so a lot of problems need to be solved if a technology is going to become transformative. Um, that's another lesson that I think we can learn for the modern world. And also that heroes are a key part of marketing technologies. They were in the 18th century, and they are now.
1: That's one thing that just is is clear again and again, that, that people stay fairly consistent. The hero is important in the 1700s, the 1800s, the 1900s, and the 2000s. It's remarkably consistent. Yeah. Well, David Miller, thank you so much. Really have enjoyed the conversation and, and learning about James Watt with you. Again, for everybody listening, if you'd like to learn more about David and his work, visit unsw.edu.au slash staff slash David-Miller. Thank you so much, David. Really appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Alex. I've enjoyed it.
1: This has been a production of Riches and Power, hosted by Alex Dubay, edited by Sean Dooley. Copyright 2023 by Wesley Capital, LLC.